it's just absolutely terrific to see that again relating back to your agreements that this is all about in the service of others if you can shift the narrative shift the way we speak shift the way we think about diversity and you know of course that's something that rings true to me too uh, being uh, born in the UK but of Sri Lankan heritage and being brought up by a Sinhalese mother and a Tamil father it's something that unity and diversity equity is, is it sits in my heart too so it, mm. it, it fills me with a lot of joy to hear you say that Welcome to the With Sayada podcast, brought to you by the Centre for Belonging and Understanding. The podcast that brings to you stories of lived experience that you might not otherwise encounter. This is a podcast that encourages you to cultivate belonging and understand others. I'm your host, author and coach Sayada Zaidi, and every episode I'll be asking a new guest to share their story. In this reverse podcast, Nilesh Satguru takes the lead and speaks with me, Sayyidah Zaidi, as if I am the guest. The aim of this style of conversation is to open the door to information and discussion that might not be had if I was the one leading the conversation. Nilesh is a guest later on in the podcast, and I can't wait to share that episode with you when it's live. He is a medical doctor and a certified high-performance coach with a mission to help inspire a community to believe in growth. Nilesh is a director for the British Society of Lifestyle Medicine and sits on the UK National Sleep Steering Committee. His approach to medicine and health is worthy of paying attention to. This conversation was instigated by a WhatsApp message that Nilesh sent to me off the cuff. And I don't normally listen to voice messages, but it was his text beforehand that was kind, appreciative and curious in tone. I know that you will absolutely love this podcast. Well, it's an absolute pleasure to be welcomed on to your podcast, Saida, and we connected very fortuitously through Certified High Performance Coaching. And I really wanted to delve in today to your mindset, habits, your stories, successes and struggles. And I thought, why don't we just get straight down to it? Why don't we get straight into the meat of it? So I've seen this incredible phrase, which sparks so much curiosity for me on your website, which is when I was seven years old, I made three decisions. I wonder if you could just elaborate on that. Yeah, I, th- I think... Um... So my parents split up when I was seven. And at the time, I I kind of didn't really realize the power of what was happening. Um, But I do remember having a huge amount of clarity over those kind of three decisions that I made and and how much they still really kind of um, serve me today. And and it is pretty miraculous, really, isn't it, that um, one can decide to do something or think about something at such a young age and it still be relevant. And and those three decisions, you know, one, learning is always going to be part of my life in some way, shape or form. Two, relationships are really important and require time. And the third one was just a, a, 
some form of a sense or understanding about knowing that that I will try and live life on my terms um, and maybe just unpacking the last one a little bit more kind of you know I was born and raised in London uh, went to a primary school where me my sisters and maybe two or three others were not white and that was in the 1970s and early 80s so that in itself was quite an interesting time to thinking about well what does it mean to live life on my own terms like there's a phrase that's just banding about everywhere right now but just I suppose there was some sense of determination that I just knew that I have to kind of like write my own rules and work things out my own way in order for whatever it is to work for me what a beautiful answer I'm just letting that sit and it's such a high level of wisdom at such a a tender age but of course wisdom sometimes has nothing to do with age so these sounds like these are kind of agreements beliefs rules laws if you like that you set up for yourself can I ask you Saida what do you think there's any times where those rules came into question were there any stories that made you question those beliefs or agreements that you made that's a really good question um I, I, you know, I, I'm not the smartest cookie in the in the jar, right? Like, there, there's no point in even pretending. I, I know that um, I have an outrageous amount of qualifications and and um, experience and things like that. That, in some ways, is testimony to taking the small amount that I have and just really pushing the boundaries with it. Like, I didn't do hugely great at my GCSEs, but I got enough to be able to get into A-levels and I did enough to be able to then get to university. Um, And that in itself was a huge blessing. I kind of feel as if, you know, in in my own language, and I would say in whatever language, you know, you have and the listeners have, for me, it was like, you know, divine intervention that I was being able to kind of be carried along And there have been times where I've become very cynical about the formality of learning and the structures in which we learn, particularly if if we look at the pandemic, for example, you know, like everything in terms of the rules of what exams are about and, and how we study have just gone up in the air and no one really knows how they land. And so the concept of how we learn and why we learn and and does it really take three years of a degree to be able to kind of work out that you want to be a carpenter for example whereas you could do an apprenticeship or something like that now don't get me wrong I'm not saying that there isn't a place for academia and for and you know I'm doing my doctorate for god's sake you know like I think there is a huge amount and and for for professions like um architecture you know medicine at law there is a a set kind of journey and I get that but I also think there is an alternative way and I'm a firm believer that one can learn a huge amount through learning that is more informal and some of the the biggest richness that I get in my own life at the moment is through those kind of um, unexpected opportunities to learn or to meet people that might not necessarily be within my circle. Okay, that's powerful. So I think 
just to distill what you're saying, you're saying that learning will always be a part of your life. That's your agreement. But the way in which that happens is actually quite fluid. And I suppose that learning will always be a part of your life was maybe on one side, from one view, it's a traditional sense. People would have thought of that you were, you were challenging the status quo. You were doing things a little bit differently. And I, and I, I really admire that. Let's let's flick more on to we, we went straight in quite deep, didn't we? But let's flick more on to what are you excited by in these in these coming days, weeks, and months? What projects or passions are you are you following at the moment? Yeah, so I'm I'm very excited about this podcast. Um and even just the kind of recognition and realization that I've got some really incredible, amazing people in my life and being able to to have brilliant conversations with them and just shine a little bit of light on them. And so when people are saying to me, you know, why are you contacting me? Why are you asking me about, you know, doing an interview for the podcast? And I'm like, all I want to do is just help you to tell your story. And that then led me on to a realization that, that I am an, an kind of auto ethnographer. And there's something really, really powerful about that in terms of, uh, the lived experience and documenting that and helping people to share so that we can all learn from that. And that then leads me on to the next thing. I'm, I'm completing my thesis. My ambition is that it will be done in a few months time. And then from there, the work that I'm doing within the, um, the diversity, equity and inclusion space. And my ambition is just to completely rewrite the whole language in there and to, I mean, everything that's been done has got us to a really powerful position right now. But I think we need something new. We need um, a new way of looking at things. The, the, you know, what's currently being delivered as training in that space just isn't working anymore. Um, and if we keep doing the same old, same old, we're going to remain with the same problem. So I'm really exploring a new kind of lens or bringing a new way of um, having those conversations that really start with where people are and the journey that they want to take rather than kind of someone rocking up and saying this is how you should do it. It's just absolutely terrific to see that again relating back to your agreements that this is all about in the service of others if you can shift the narrative shift the way we speak shift the way we think about diversity and, you know, of course, that's something that rings true to me, too, uh, being uh, born in the UK, but of Sri Lankan heritage and being brought up by a Sinhalese mother and a Tamil father. It's something that unity and diversity equity is, is, it sits in my heart, too. So it, mm. it, it fills me with a lot of joy to hear you say that. Thank you. I want to ask you something which perhaps not many people ask you. And I think that I've heard you pay a lot of gratitude for others, which is a wonderful thing. But what at the moment are you most grateful for with yourself? What could you pay self-gratitude for about your character, your mindset, your habits to get you to where you are right now? Um, about myself as opposed to about others, right? Yeah, yeah. Gosh, yeah. That's a hard question. Um, I think one of the things is my determination. Um, like if I'm convinced about something in the way that I am about the work that I'm currently doing, and, and I do want to just also say it's taken me a lot of pain mm -hmm. and 
and turmoil and and angst to get to the level of clarity that I have now mm-hmm. but I'm grateful for it and it really is determination that got me through all of those challenges because I was like I can see the problem I just don't know what the answer is and I don't claim to know the complete answer but I can see what is the next piece and I think that's the thing that's really really quite important so determination um I think always kind of knowing that um I don't have all the answers um but you know I might not have the answer but I have an idea of how to get one and even if that answer that's then presented in front of me is the wrong answer or it will only work momentarily that's kind of okay because I can use that as something to get me to the next piece you know um and I'm trying to think of a third one. Um, I, I'm going to say the third thing that, that kind of keeps me grounded is my priority of sleep. Like if I don't, if I don't get good quality <laughs> sleep, I just know that I do not function or operate in the way that I need to be able to do the work that I want to do. And this beautifully segues on. And again, there's something really close to me. I, I spent some time sitting with them. Um, the UK's National Sleep Committee to to really change the narrative around sleep, and definitely with the work that we do with the British Lifestyle British Society of Lifestyle Medicine as well, we know that sleep is like the foundational pillar for health. But let's I, I want to speak about the f- pillars of high performance because you know we're both certified high performance coaches, and that's what I'm really fascinated by how people like you manage to succeed consistently for years whilst serving others personally and professionally and you spoke about physiology so it makes sense that we dive straight into physiology you you mentioned sleep what what do you do Saida to prevent fatigue and generate the energy that you need to help you continue to serve others what what kind of habits do you have um so on a good day because not all days are good days but on a good day I I drink enough water um, I I do enjoy my coffee. I know there's lots of kind of like differences of opinions around it, but I really like my coffee. And when I drink it, I will enjoy it. Um, uh, a good balance of food. So, you know, like lots of vegetables, lots of, um, well, a good amount of fruit, but not too much, if that makes sense, because of the, the sugars and all of that. Um, I... Protein is a priority, but it because it's I say that because it's something that's easy to miss. Um, uh, exercise, I would say I, I was blessed to to have bought a Peloton before we went into lockdown, and that was really my saving grace when we were unable to even go outside for for physical exercise. So that and and I think there, you know, I don't want to go off on a kind of like sales pitch for Peloton, but the <laughs> thing is, is that there's something really magical about the way that they've constructed their exercises so that you join a class, but you also get kind of like a psychological um, uh, boost in the messages that they give. And I, I find the way that they use the words really powerful. So out of 10 different things, one will land with you and that's enough. Right. So even if you just get one kind of positive statement out of a class, that's brilliant. Um, the the other thing that I have 
really started to do is to prioritize rest. So for example, yesterday was a whole day of writing for my thesis and I sat at my desk. I operate in Pomodoros. So 25 minutes, five minute break, 25 minutes. And at the end of two hours, um, I'll take a slightly longer break. And it's, it, the, the science behind that is documented in the book, Results That Aren't Science of Getting It Done. Mm-hmm. Now, um, I share that because yesterday, I, literally from like, you know, 8 a.m. until 6, I was writing my thesis. And for breaks, I would go downstairs and I'd watch episodes of Ted Lasso or I'd eat lunch with my husband or something. But when I was on my break, like I wasn't thinking about anything to do with the thesis. And so it's the the kind of compartmentalization of things. And what's then coming to my mind about this is when my kids were younger, people would, because I was working as a director in local government, and people would say to me, how can you leave your kids and come to work? Now, no one is going to say that to someone now, right? Because they're going to get into trouble. But people said that to me. And my answer was always the same. When I'm at home, I'm at home. When I'm at work, I'm at work. And because I know my kids are happy and safe and loved, I don't have to worry about how they are. And because I know that when I'm at work, I'm I'm focusing on the job, I I'm really don't have to take some of that stuff home with me, you know. And so the 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 biggest, I think, answer to your question in terms of how I manage my day and all of those things is just to make sure that everything has its due time. And it has its due focus and attention. Mm. And this, this beautifully relates to the sixth pillar of high performance, which is presence. And it's come up again and again. You know, you're having your coffee, but you're present. You're enjoying it. You're, when you're at work, you're at work. When you're at home, you're at home. I have to ask you about your, your book, Results. And we have to go a little bit deeper in that. And I'm sure there'll be loads that comes out of it. But please share with me the story behind the book so what was the what was the struggle that initial struggle that question the dramatic question that led to you going no the world needs this book and I need this book I need to write it and I and I love the way that you've asked that because you know what is the dramatic question in that literally I had one of those (laughs) and you know March came the pandemic and like everybody else I was just in this uh how is this thing going to unpack Like I had no idea what was going to come. And it's that turmoil that then gets created, but also knowing that you've somehow got to keep on going and be okay because other people are relying on you. And it was, it was thinking, well, how do I do that for myself? Because the, the, the kind of foundational piece for what I'm saying to you now actually is that I've lost three, sorry, I've lost six months of my life twice before. So once was after my car accident and I just kind of, um, I ended up being in a place where I could do very little. I couldn't even peel a potato. And I, I woke up one day and I just thought, you know what, my life is not meant to be sitting in front of the TV, watching Jeremy Kyle and eating trash. And that was the moment at which I decided to make the decision to see if I could do something to get my life back to what I would wanted it to be. And, and so I know what it's like to lose time. And the second time that that happened was when we were in Egypt, kind of 
doing the so-called living your life and being an expat and, you know, traveling and all of this other stuff. And we were having really incredible, amazing experiences, but I just wasn't feeling it. And I couldn't work out why. And then the time came when I started to to kind of just have a different perspective on some of the, the, the wonderful things that, you know, you want your whole life to go and do, like, you know, swim with the, the, um, the dolphins and all of these kind of things. And, and I just thought, you know, shifting perspective on that is going to enable me to experience some joy again in these things. And because I'd been through two experiences of, of what I describe as like wasting six months of my life, I was so determined that was not going to happen again. And then it was, how do I make sure it doesn't happen again? So in my training, I'm a project manager and I am also a positive psychologist. And it was the bringing together of some of those things that kind of great gave the pathway. Because I think when we're in the personal development field, um, there's a lot of talk about, you know, uh, do these things, they're good for you, experience joy, you know, all of this other stuff. But that no one's really shown the step-by-step of how to do exactly those things. And for me, it was, okay, how do I bring these two pieces together? And that was what took me to the book and the contents of the book. And I wrote it because I needed the answer for me. You know, I needed to know how do I get myself out of this place where everything is so uncertain and, how can I get the, the motivation and the desire to overcome my own um, showstoppers and my imposter syndrome and all of this other stuff so that I can move forward? And that's how, you know, we've ended up with the with the book. Well, I think the world's going to be a much better place for it. And I, it's just, I love hearing people's stories. Something that really strikes me about book writing is it's there forever now a part of your consciousness has come down and your, your children, grandchildren, they will always have access to, this is what Saida was thinking about. This is what she was doing. This is um, how she perceived and viewed the world. And I, I think that that is just such a magical thing. Um, and so I'm not sure if anyone sort of explains it in that way, but I, I, I just want to pay you some gratitude right now for that, for, for, for being an author and putting the work out there. Um, because, you know, I, I'm creating small bits of work and I know even writing a, a 30 page guide is a, is, is, you know, it's, it's a real labor of love. So I, I would say something though, if, if you'll allow me in that it, it's a labor of love when you care, right? Mm-hmm. Actually, I, I do sometimes see people writing just for the sake of writing. Mm-hmm. And and I think that that's kind of like doing a little bit of a disservice to the content that's being produced. Mm-hmm. So if you care about it, then that's when you view it as hard work. And that's when it, it is a challenge because you're always thinking about it in the back of your mind. Like I've written stuff before in the past and on, honestly, like, uh, it, you know, I've been ambivalent towards it. Whereas this thing, it was important. So it sounds as if the writing that you're doing is important to you and that then takes it to a whole other level. Yeah, and and, and, and I thank you for that. I know that our Brendan, you know, our, our CEO of High Performance Institute, he often speaks about how high performers, um, they don't just play from their strengths, but they see what's needed and required to be of service and they learn those skills. And I'm very much at that stage when I'm looking at, at gaps uh, and and building those skills. So 
This actually segues really beautifully onto because you've you've had the opportunity to work with, be a mastermind, be mentored by, uh, coached by some absolutely terrific minds. And I just want to find out, I'd love to hear your journey as to how does somebody who starts life as an architect and studies theology, positive psychology, then move into um really into the, the the highest rank of of entrepreneurship and and coaching just talk me through that journey how did that happen um it was probably all a big accident <laughs> i mean i don't know how it happened i think that the that um so the move from architecture to local government in some ways was a response to um the car accident and um how i at the time you know a lot of architecture was about you know using drawing boards and you know bending your back over and it just meant that I was physically unable to do it and so I thought well how can I use my skill set in a different way um now when I left local government I um I wasn't sure what I was going to do next but I'd asked somebody to kind of give me some advice someone I respected and um that was a uh, uh, one of the trainers on a project director's development program that I did with UCL, University College London. And they recommended that I train to become a business coach. And so, and they they recommended me to Mayra Campbell. So actually that's where I trained. And that was the segue into me becoming a coach. Um, As I was kind of coaching others, people would ask me questions about, you know, like, why why is this change theory working in this way or or how um does the grow model kind of uh, what are the nuances of it etc cetera, etc cetera. and i didn't have the answers because i am not a psychologist and so i thought well i need to do some study so that at least i've got some form of an answer that i can construct that isn't from somebody else's so i went off and did my masters in applied positive psychology actually even the story of how i did that was fascinating <laughs> because at the time there were only two places in the world that did a masters in applied positive psychology one was in pennsylvania with martin seligman and the yeah. other one was a 10 minute bus ride away from where i live <laughs> <laughs> I was just like, how does that happen? Anyway, so I did that. And I think that was the the real thing that has led me to um to be doing the work that I'm doing now. And and I I I suppose others have told me, and I'm now becoming very comfortable in this, in that I operate in on the boundaries and on the edges of spaces. And that creates a really interesting, wonderful tension. Because even as I'm writing my thesis now, I'm taking ideas from leadership development and and kind of change management and applying it to practical theology and then bringing in the element of coaching and, and all of these other things and unpicking that stuff about identity and intersectionality. And so when you kind of cross fertilize ideas from different Mm. places, I think you create a new language and, you know, even, even doing that gives a different way of looking at stuff and it may be right. It may not be, but just putting a mirror up and saying, well, this is what's going on. And how about looking at it from this angle um, creates wonderful conversations. I love that cross pollination of ideas. 
Um, that that's that's so incredibly true. I mean, I I know this to be true in my work. You know, I I see that the medical field, where I've trained and worked for fifteen years now, um, is really in need of inspiration. There's a lot of information, but the inspiration's not quite there. And I know that we need that inspiration to absorb that and help us learn and grow. But I see the personal growth world, which is where I am now, is probably not having enough science-backed information, which is what led me to 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 study with with the High Performance Institute, so there was the science-backed information. And that also lifestyle medicine work, Martin Seligman was a big part of that and, and positive psychology is a big part of that. So yeah, just in a similar way, the, the stars kind of aligned. And um, I, I couldn't agree more about this concept of, of oneness and synergy and coming together of, of, of ideas. Mm. Let, let's talk about people skills, because I think that this is something that's not spoken about anywhere near enough. You're somebody with a huge amount of aptitude and technical skill, but we know that that's really, there are many people who have a huge amount of technical skill and aptitude, but I think what's truly fascinating about you, Saida, is that you've combined it with people skills. And I really want to understand uh, whether it was intentional or unintentional, how, how did you go about developing your people skills so that you could serve others? I'm kind of, um, I mean, firstly, thank you for, for even seeing that. It's, it's um, I don't think I've always had good people skills. Um, I, I'm kind of clear on the relationships that I want to build. And I think through that, I'm very much at the moment, I'm kind of thinking, well, if I meet someone, how do I want them to feel? And that's my real kind of area of focus. And, and actually, I would, I would say that through the pandemic, um, I've had opportunities to kind of widen my own personal village and community exponentially. And that's because when I meet someone that I like, I follow it up now. Whereas before, and honestly, I've got thousands of business cards somewhere where people <laughs> gave me their cards and I never followed up. Um, but it wasn't meant to be. Whereas now, if if I like somebody's energy, then I will follow up with them. And at least if we have one conversation, then we get a sense of each other. And then there really is no agenda around that conversation, but it's just kind of like a mutual understanding and building and thinking, well, what does that person do? What do I do? And do we really get to know each other? Um and, and I suppose to, to kind of answer your question a little bit more directly, one of the things that I've been doing is I've been building teams um, to kind of work within the diversity, equity and inclusion space. And because my approach to it is so different, I want to make sure that I have the right kind of people um, in my team. And so I could speak to you about skill set and experience and capacity and all of those other things. And they are 100% important. But see, if we energetically don't get on, mm. then all of those things, to be honest, are irrelevant for me. Because I'm at the place in my life now that I only want to work with people that I like and with people that can get on. That doesn't mean that we're all thinking like each other because there's no space for me, in, I think, for groupthink. That's one thing that really presses my buttons. And so I like creative tension, but I want to work with people who have mutual respect for the variety of different opinions, 
within that group and can kind of use that creative tension to create something that is of use to the world and is of use to us and that they can all get on with each other as well you know so for me I suppose what one of my boundaries now in some ways is like you know if I meet you and this is pretty much kind of what happened to us right like if I meet you if energetically there's some sort of a click we'll have another conversation and if that works then you know I've kind of adopted you in my life (laughs) and that's it that's that's a really beautiful thing because actually you're talking about it from both sides you're talking about how people connect with you but also how you connect with others and I think for anyone listening to this, you know, I will send this out to various people in my family. There's such power in that short phrase that you said, which is, I'm really clear as to how I want people to feel. And I think this comes back again and again, whether it's you're writing a piece, you're on a podcast, you're on a video, um, the best speakers, coaches, thought leaders, they, they all have clarity on how they want other people to feel. What I'd like to ask you in a little bit more detail is, um, Again, back to your agreements, you said relationships are important to me and need time. Mm-hmm. Now, time is an interesting one, isn't it? Time, time is something that when, when you have so many incredible people that you could connect with, but they need time, how do you manage that? Like, what are the actions that you do to, 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 to kindly manage that, that resource when you're writing a book, when you've got a thesis, when you've got your kids? Yeah, so I, I, what's what's really coming to my mind is because um, I spoke about people that I that I want to spend time with, but actually, what about the people where they they want to spend time with me, but I don't feel the energetic kind of like click. So how do I deal with that? And that's a difficult one. But what I do, what I try and do, is help them to kind of be the one that walks away because that is then easier for me in the whole kind of thing about what comes around goes around and because they then feel that it's not working for them right rather than me having to say actually this isn't quite right I will seed some of those things in if I think that they are amenable to it and that there is an area of growth for them but at the same time I don't want to be offensive you know, um, and I also know that energetically they will take uh, some more time that I'm willing to give to that. So that's how I deal with with um, people that um, are wonderful, but not necessarily wonderful and a good fit for me. And we all have people like that in our lives. And I think to deny that is to do yourself an untruth. Um. In terms of time, to answer your question, it's quite interesting because some relationships literally happen like that. Right? I met somebody a few weeks ago and we had a, a kind of virtual coffee today and I felt like I'd known her my whole life. You know? Now, that kind of person, it means if I don't meet them again for several months or several years, it's fine because the connection is there even though it happened virtually, right? Um, There was a conversation that I remember having with one person uh, almost three years ago now um, in Liverpool, in the cathedral, in the crypt. And that conversation 
and maybe a couple of tweet exchanges then led me to have a really deep, meaningful conversation with them more recently, which kind of put a mutual opportunity both of our ways. So time is kind of, it's got so much flex, you know, and I don't, I would not ever advocate or want to do like an artificial curation of a relationship because that's never going to work. And even if you think you're being smart, it it's about it does come back to the thing about how does the other person feel, you know. Um, I I remember when um, I was introduced to my husband. I had a huge amount of resistance towards meeting him because I'd been introduced to so many other people, but um, I also knew that there was you know some potential. Anyway, we met. And our first conversation was about fish finger sandwiches. Um, and within a month, we decided, because we, we'd had some conversations around, well, what do you want to do in your life? And what do you want from life? And there seemed to be some form of a connection. And so a month later, we decided, yeah, okay, we'll get married. Three months later, that was done. And here we are 20 years on. And, and I mentioned that because some people spend, you know, years and years kind of courting someone, not knowing where it's going to go and what the direction is. So time is fluid. Time is what you want to make of it. The depth of conversation and connection, actually, you can create in 10 seconds if that's something that you and the other person wants. But also you can't cultivate it in 10 years if it's not there. I completely agree. I completely agree. I love that story about how fish finger sandwiches led to a <laughs> led to a wedding. I love that the stories that you've, you've you've given us some real kind of vivid imagery, you know, in your stories, and I and I, and I like that because it's just so relatable. Um, how you know how you spoke about at various stages sitting on the sofa watching Jeremy Carr. I'm sure we can all relate to that. Um, so let's move on to to your purpose. At the age of seven, it sounds like you've you've had a very clear purpose and you had clarity on what you do like and what you don't like. And, but what, what do you do? I mean, all of us purpose flows, doesn't it? It's not your life's purpose isn't set, set in stone. So what do you do Saido when you feel off purpose? Um, I, I think the first thing I do is that I allow myself to be off purpose, you know, because I think if you, if, when I, if I force myself and I do that kind of like, you know, fake it till you make it thing. It just doesn't work for me. And in fact, what that does is it pushes me to a place that's even further away. Whereas um, kind of allowing that space to, to feel off purpose, to kind of um, reflect and think and just kind of question everything um, uh, from your values and, you know, or everything that you're doing and all of that stuff. I actually think that's a really useful space to be in and it's nasty and there's some, a huge amount of tension and internal conflict is the worst thing. But actually, if you allow yourself to be in that space, then you get a lot of clarity on the other side. Mm -hmm. And so I contain it. You know, I've not always done this. There've been times where I've been off purpose for, for years but perhaps I've been on a different purpose or I've been on somebody else's purpose, not on my own. But now that I'm clear about what mine is, I have an idea of, of when I am and am not. Um, there are some activities that I do which are off purpose, but 
are needed for the agenda that I have. Mm-hmm. And so you just got to surrender yourself sometimes to doing that stuff and just get it done. Um, but yeah, I would say allow yourself and then remind yourself of why you're doing something. Because that I think is the most um that's the thing that can bring you back. So, for example, if you look at behind me, there's a sign that says intellectual integrity requires putting your ideas into action. I remember um, the board that I have for that I bought in Los Angeles maybe about four or five years ago, and it's it sat in its pack unopened for more than a year and a half. And then when I opened it up, I thought, gosh, what am I going to write on it? And so that that phrase for me is something that I was writing and was really, really significant, but I didn't do anything with it. So I put it on the board and the board kind of like sat, you know, somewhere in my room, but not something that I looked at every single day. And as soon as I started to look at it every day, something within me started to change because there is that piece about the subliminal messages that you're sending yourself. So to be on purpose is the reminder for me that I've got to put my ideas into action and actually looking at this and I've got it written on a post-it note in front of me as well. It means I can't run away from it. And so some may say that that's kind of, you know, quite a a triggering thing to do, but you know, for me, I don't want to run away from it. I do not want to run away from my purpose. I want to keep reminding myself, even when it's painful, even when it's not easy, because that's the thing that then kind of helps to to modulate my life and keep me on track. And that's the thing that, you know, when I really can't be bothered to write another 20,000 words for my thesis, it just makes me think, you know what, you just got to do it. Because if you don't do this step, some of the other ones may not happen. What do you, what would you say? I'm, I'm really interested in that because that would, that sort of links very much into motivation and how, how we have, you know, intrinsic motivators and extrinsic motivators and what, what's going to keep us going through those challenging times, which I know a lot of people on the podcast will want to hear. How do you keep going when, when things are against you and you're feeling off purpose? So what would you say is the end point of that? So you're feeling off purpose. You read the sign. Intellectual integrity requires putting your ideas into action. You take action. But who are those actions for? So when I'm feeling really lost, it doesn't matter who they're for. Like literally, like, I mean, what I realized is that my way out of this is to set my timer 25 minutes and I've just got to do something. doesn't matter if I'm answering emails or if I'm reading something or sorting out my books, but I just have to do something Hmm. because that one tiny little action could, it could be the thing that opens the door to other things happening. But if I just sit and wallow in the, oh, I don't know what I'm doing. Why am I bothering? Then I'll just stay in that space for a lot longer. And, and to be perfectly honest, there have been times when 25 minutes is too much and five minutes is all I can do. Right. But you've got to know where you are, because if there's a lot going on in your life, um, then five minutes is enough. And yet, the thing that I suppose really helped me through the pandemic and still is something that I've now got in my toolbox is allowing my own duvet days. <laughs> so, right? so if I want to do nothing, then allow it. If I have too many days of doing nothing, I need to kind of like bring myself into check and say, well, there's something else going on here. 
I think I think that's just an incredible, incredible point. And compassion is something that sits right at the at the core of everything I do. It's one of my core values. And I think you know some people, uh, a lot of people are aware of compassion. It's not just um, showing an awareness of suffering, but taking action to relieve that suffering. But very few people are self compassionate, and that's really what you're referring to. Allowing myself to have those duvet days, so that it gives me the time, the space to move on and serve others to get back onto on on your mission. Um, but here's I, the I thing that. about. So thank you. Sorry. Um, here's the thing about compassion, though, in that I think it, it's easy for us to be compassionate towards other people. Mm. It's really hard to be compassionate towards yourself. Mm-hmm. And this is something that I'm constantly having to learn because I want to operate at a million miles an hour. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And in some to some people, even when they say to me, you know, how are you doing and what are you working on? I have to make sure that I only say one or two things because if I say too many, they feel overwhelmed for me. Mm-hmm. And, and so I don't do that because I'm then in a position where I'm not able to be compassionate to myself because I'm seeing their overwhelm. Mm. So it's how do you manage yourself and how you communicate so that you can bring in self-compassion. And self-compassion can be anything to listening to a song. My favorite phrase at the moment is rest is an act of resilience, right? And resistance, right? So rest is an act of resilience and resistance. And it's resistance against productivity. It's resistance against so many different kind of like things that are being championed for now because like what I mean, we speak about. I think you said earlier on toxic positivity or something, or maybe I heard that somewhere else. But mm-hmm. I think there's toxic productivity, right? And I'm I am not a fan of that in any way, and that's why I think self compassion is so important. Yeah, I completely hear you on that. And you know, a huge inspiration to me is Professor Kristen Neff. I'm sure you're aware of her work in Texas and how she speaks about that. You know, there's three features of self-compassion. There's mindfulness, there's kind, self-kindness, and then there's a connection to something bigger than yourself, a planetary connection and connection to the the world. And I I just, I think it's so wonderful to hear something that, again, that sits with me is uh, compassionate entrepreneurs. I see entrepreneurs who are out there um, driven by a compassionate purpose, and role modeling the way, role modeling how to be compassionate with yourself. We know that the benefits go extend really, really far. It's, it's probably, a, and again, I don't know if we know the answer to this, uh, but we can hypothesize. And I'd just be interested to hear your thoughts. But why do you think it is that so many of us find it so difficult to be self-compassionate? Oh, gosh, that's a big one, isn't it? Um I, I don't know, but I wonder if it's because as human beings, is it uh, that we have an innate quality to nurture others and to care for others? Um, and so we forget about ourselves because we're too busy worrying about, you know, I mean, like, for example, for me, you know, and in fact, you know, for many parents, I would say, what do you do? The minute you become a parent, you kind of let a little bit of yourself go because you're so worried about that child. And is that child going to be able to thrive and survive? And you would sacrifice yourself for them. But then there's also got to be a boundary of you making sure that you take care of yourself so that you're you're not pushed to that place where you're making such big sacrifices that when the kid goes off, you've got regrets later on. And you're thinking, well, why did I do all of that? You know? And, I, and 
I think we're now starting to learn about how do we have boundaries around ourselves as human beings. Um, and so maybe this new world that we're living in could be built on an increased sense of self-compassion. Yeah, I, th- I love that answer. I think that's true. I think for me as well, I see it as if you think about the relationship with yourself, like any relationship, like you said, it requires time. And I think that unfortunately, there are very few trainings or people that we learn from that help us listen to our own thoughts and compassionately without judgment. This is the key bit. We do listen to our thoughts, but we listen to them with judgment, right? And we all do this you know, full, full um, accountability that I, I judge my own thoughts too. Um, so I think that, I think the reason is, is that we could, we, we, when we're growing up, we learn in this world of right and wrong and judgment sits at a really important part of survival for us. And so I think that that judgmental mindset kind of takes over. And I think for me, I think certainly that's the thing that I'm continuously working on is how can I judge myself and others less and, and role model that, um, I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed the conversation. We're not yet finished, but I do have one question, which I, I really love to ask many different people. Um, and it's often one we ask you know, with my family, which is what, what's the, what's the one intentional lesson that you learned from your family, from your parents? And what's the one unintentional lesson that you learned from them? Oh gosh. Um, I think I, I think the intern sorry the intentional lesson is to be very clear about what it is that you want from life, right? And articulate it. No, don't hold it in. Um, yeah, I think that that's probably the intentional one. I think the unintentional one is make sure you take care of yourself because if you don't, no one else will, Hmm. you know, and, um, and, and why am I sharing these two? I think, you know, you know, my, my parents came over to the UK in the early seventies and and then I was born and I think time for them uh, growing up, uh, you know, London is very, very diverse and mixed now and it wasn't then. Mm. And we see through some of the stories being documented now, the lived experience of um, ethnic minority and black people in the 1970s and 80s. I mean, even earlier than that, you know, it was pretty horrendous. You know, I remember seeing signs saying things like, you know, no blacks, no dogs, no Irish. And that's in my lived experience, you know. So what must life have been like that for them i just cannot fathom and and the challenge really is that that some of those things i think are coming back because of the the kind of landscape that we live in at the moment within many different countries and so that piece about kind of having your own priorities and knowing what you stand for but also making sure you take care of yourself i think is fundamental for the lived experience of life at least being a a fairly decent one yeah that's such wisdom that's such wisdom 
I thank you so much for that. I, you've spoken a lot and I, I'm so grateful that you have spoken a lot about something that's close to your heart, which is um, diversity and racial inequalities. If you could, if you could, I'm just, this has just come straight from me. This is just coming from the heart. But if you, if you were writing a curriculum, let's say for young children at the moment, and you could name that curriculum or a module or something that they had to take at school about racial equality and, and diversity, about learning and unlearning, and maybe I've, I've stolen your uh, line there. What would you call it, Saida? And why, why would you call that module, that curriculum, um, why would you call it that? Yeah, and, and it's such a great question. Um, and I think the thing for me, just to unpack things a little bit more, is that, you know, there's there's the racial diversity, there's also gender, there's sexuality, there's religious, there's there's age, socioeconomic, there's so many different things. And I think, mm-hmm. um, I, you know, I, I'm speaking um, a lot about race, but all of those other things come into it as well. Um, and the the curriculum and actually the curriculum that I am creating and working on um, and teaching is called belonging and understanding and for me the kind of both sides of those of that coin are absolutely essential in that the belonging starts with you one feeling comfortable within their own skin their own being whatever it is and helping other people to feel as if they can belong. And that comes with understanding, but also understanding that some people want to do the work, some people don't want to do the work. So um, there's a, a, I mean, it's a a very poor translation, but there's a a translation of a Rumi quote, which essentially says there's, there's right and there's wrong, and in between there's a field. And I think that belonging and understanding help us to be in the field. I'm so pleased you quoted Rumi. Yeah, that's 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 so that's so wonderful. Um, well, I don't know if it was your intention, but I feel very full after this conversation. So maybe that was something that was in your in your mind. Um, we've spoken about so many incredible things. Um, I, I, again, I just thank you so much for for spending the time to for going deep into your own mindset and habits, and I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. I trust that my subconscious will will remember everything it needs to and then help me with this information at some time. Where, where can people, I know people know where they can find you, but do you want to share a little bit more about anything that's upcoming that, that you've got going on? I know you shared the book, the podcast, anything else that we should know, Saida? Um, so you've kind of referred to it a couple of times in passing, but I have my weekly newsletter called Learn, Unlearn, Relearn. Um, and I kind of speak about, you know, a vast range of different things in there. And I really set it up because of that desire to learn and then thinking, well, you know, society tells us X about, you know, for example, I I wrote something on grief, which seemed to get some really quite amazing responses. And it was like, well, we've learned grief is this. So how do we unlearn some of these things if they don't serve us? And what can we relearn about it? done stuff on rest um, I've even done stuff on learning so many different things but um, that's where you kind of like can get a, a weekly um, dose of uh, Sayada straight into your uh, email okay I'm definitely signing up I, I you know I love actually getting these bits of inspiration and I'm 
it sounds like something that's uh, that's going to be eye-opening and help me connect some dots, which is always a, a positive thing. Thank you so much to everyone listening. And uh, it's been an absolute pleasure. Uh, my name is Nilesh Sakharu, and I look forward to meeting you in person someday, Saida, uh, as well. Likewise. And thank you so much. And uh, and I hope that we're now going to do the reverse one as well at some point, because I would just love to share your story as well and, and some of the insights and the way um, that you've questioned and kind of like taken me on that journey in this podcast has just, it's been really insightful. So there's a lot for me to unpack uh, as we finish as well. So thank you. My pleasure. If you enjoyed this episode of With Sayada, I'd appreciate it if you could rate, review and subscribe. It helps other people find out about the podcast and the work of the Centre for Belonging and Understanding.